I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, featuring at least one lost sci-fi short story from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s in every episode. I'm your host, Scott Miller, audiobook narrator and lover of science fiction. Today, we've got two lost sci-fi short stories for you. On the surface, they would appear to be dissimilar, but they do have a few things in common. Both stories were written by men, if you can believe the names used when the stories were published, in 1954. The use of pseudonyms was very common in science fiction magazines during the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We know nothing about these two men, and neither produced many stories that appear in the publications of the time, or since, for that matter. Our first story is one of my personal favorites for what you may consider to be an odd reason. When narrating an audiobook, the writing style of some authors just, for lack of a better word, works. It flows off the tongue and it's easy to narrate. If I could find more stories by Richard Magruder, I would narrate them. But this is the only one I could find. Our main character is an inventor. Nathaniel Evergood was an eccentric old man with a photographic passion for pretty girls. So he invented a camera lens for special effects. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy in December 1954, and All the Girls Were Nude by Richard Magruder. Appearances oftentimes can be deceiving, and things most certainly aren't always as they seem. Take the case of Nathaniel Evergood, for instance. The nature of this old man was such that nobody ever called him Nat, not even his closest working companions in the company's bookkeeping department. As long as any of them had ever known Nathaniel Evergood, 
There had never been the slightest indication of any desire of his for intimacy or even friendship. Not once had he shared a drink or lunch or relaxed conversation with anyone, so far as his associates knew. To say Nathaniel was reserved is putting it mildly. It would be more accurate to describe this little old man as dull, completely and absolutely dull, in his appearance, his dress, his speech, in every way imaginable. But in addition to being quite dull, as everyone knew, Nathaniel Evergood was also a thoroughly evil and obscene old man, as no one knew. Likely the main reason no one had ever seen the inside of Nathaniel's rooms was the fear within him that his evilness and obscenity might be discovered. For Nathaniel Evergood might be called a connoisseur, to slightly distort the meaning of that word. He could be called a connoisseur of femininity, from afar and in secret, of course, an arbiter of the well-turned thigh, the rounded, dimpled bottom the tight waist, and the high, firm bosom. Oh, Nathaniel Evergood was a connoisseur, all right. At the investigation, he ventured a very rough but conservative guess that he had collected at least 50,000 pictures of girls, in whole or in part, horizontal or vertical, semi-nude or nude, over the years. Upon entering his living room, if that were possible, the first thing a casual observer would have noted would be the point of saturation reached by his walls in their photographic content. There were photographs of blondes and brunettes and redheads. There were pictures of thin girls, fat girls, girls with ample bosoms and girls lacking. Girls holding telephones, books, and ice cream cones. Girls 18, girls 25 and girls no longer girls. There were shots in glorious color by the hundreds, originals and prints alike. But there wasn't among them one single view of the Grand Canyon, nor even a solitary Indian astride a tired horse looking pensively out over the prairie. There was a red-skinned maiden, mind you, but she wasn't sitting a horse, and she certainly wasn't staring laconically out over any prairie either. Rather, she appeared to be testing with her toe the water temperature of a tree-shaded brook somewhere, and she was clad in a lone, strategically located feather. On the tea table, in the bookshelves, in the magazine rack, and all through his rooms, one might find other evidence of this evil and obscene old man's preoccupation with womankind. But the kind of woman he was preoccupied with often wasn't the kind that married dear old dad. He subscribed to every girly publication in the country, and uh, several in France. So you see, Nathaniel Evergood was not only a connoisseur, he was also an avid collector. There were books, and there were magazines, and there was even a deck of playing cards, backed with the most astounding set of pictures you ever saw. That anyone could sit down to a game of Old Maid or Snap with that deck of cards is inconceivable, to say the least. But such an evil and obscene old man as Nathaniel Evergood likely never played games with his cards anyway. He would much prefer to just sit and look at them 
the reverse side, of course. He later said he probably spent almost half his really quite meager earnings for up-to-date additions to his extensive collection. The girly magazines, playing cards, and prints he received from various mail-order houses sent, as the advertisements testified, in a plain, unmarked envelope. But the other half of his collection, the photographs, mounted, unmounted, matte, and glossy enlargements, and contact prints, Nathaniel Evergood came by in an entirely different and somewhat novel manner. These resulted from his ability as a fairly advanced amateur photographer. Over the years, Nathaniel had acquired three fine cameras, an excellent enlarger, two contact printers, Electronic flash units, interchangeable lenses, filters, sunshades, and lens caps, extension tubes, and tripods. In short, Nathaniel Evergood was well-equipped to take photographs of just about everything. He had the equipment, and he had the necessary technical knowledge and facility. But invariably, he passed up the usual pictorial, architectural, human interest, interpretive, and abstract photographs even when the opportunities for truly fine shots were there. Instead, he took roll after roll, pack after pack, and cartridge upon cartridge of girls. Nothing but girls. All sorts of girls. Just girls. At the investigation, Nathaniel suggested that the presence of a camera introduced on the scene in a gentlemanly and courteous manner, was enough to cause almost frenzied unlocking and unzipping by even the most demure and prudish female. Ladies, Nathaniel said wisely, love to have their bodies recorded for posterity. Oh, he was certainly a very evil and highly obscene old man, was Nathaniel Evergood, if ever you saw one. But the full import of what his evil old soul and obscene little mind contained would probably escape the casual observer, unless he happened onto a tiny cubbyhole at the back of the rooms occupied by Nathaniel. This was the sanctum sanctorum, so to speak, of his thin little heart. For here Nathaniel Evergood guarded jealously a secret utterly beyond belief. He fancied himself to be something of an inventor, and he was, too, of a sort. His ardent and relentless pursuit of photographic subject matter during the years had led him into situations demanding full knowledge of his craft, from a technical rather than from an artistic point of view. Thus, this inventive turn of mind was given an able assist by his understanding of the theory, optics, and chemistry of photography. And now he was just putting the finishing touches to the most important project in his entire life. Basing his plan of action on the simple optical theory of astigmatism, Nathaniel designed a lens. Astigmatism, he had learned, results in the human eye, as well as in manufactured lenses of certain formula, in the failure of horizontal and vertical target lines to reach a common focus. So, his lens was designed intentionally astigmatic, allowing focus to be brought on one group of target lines or another, but never on both simultaneously. To the front of the lens mount, he added a front-surfaced prism and a filter, 
carefully ground and tinted internally the precise color complement of human flesh. He reasoned quite accurately, as it turned out, that the prism would gather all the colors of light together and converge them at the focal plane of the lens as pure white, thus eliminating all color. But at the same instant, the complement filter replaced last the flesh color of the object focused upon, and subsequently recorded on film. Then, in one fell swoop, the lens allowed Nathaniel to focus carefully on one group of target lines, in his case, the female form underneath its covering, automatically throwing an opposing group of lines out of focus, the covering over the female body, in his case. The prism was busily gathering together all color and converting it into pure white light, while lastly the complementary filter replaced the color of flesh to the image and finally to the photograph. You see the possibilities, of course. By replacing the normal lens of one fine camera with his invention, Nathaniel Evergood was now equipped to photograph in rich, natural color the female form divine, unfettered by any or all clothing. Well, this day in particular... Nathaniel Evergood stationed himself, poised like a pointer, at his window, camera in hand, invention in place, waiting impatiently for the first likely subject to appear. And, shameful as it must seem, this evil and obscene old man was quite noticeably drooling, right from one side of his pinched little mouth. He heard the saucy click of her heels on the pavement a full thirty seconds before she swung gracefully into his myopic line of sight. She was blondish, not too blonde, understand, but just blonde enough, and she was a true blue blonde at heart, if you know what I mean. Shutter, set at one two-hundredth of a second. Diaphragm, F5.6. Film, real-life color. Rangefinder, superimposed. Click, 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 click. Four shots. Four beautiful pictures in color, too, before she was gone on down the street. With incredible speed, this evil and obscene old man descended from his window perch and scuttered back to his little cubbyhole. He darkened the room and unloaded the automatic sheet film holder. No attempt can be made to describe the gnawing impatience that Nathaniel Evergood felt as he sloshed the sensitized emulsions through the series of solutions for the precise time required for true color rendition, as after ninety long minutes he washed the sheets and finally held them up to the light for a first wide-eyed look. She was there, all right. His swaying blonde. She was there, all of her. Well, sir, after filling his eyes and his evil little mind with the four lovely images of the girl, Nathaniel Evergood rushed to the downtown camera shop and wrote out a large check for their entire supply of real-life color film. Then, back on the street, madly clicking, clicking, clicking. Every pretty girl that came along, every single one, Oh, he had a time for himself, did this evil, obscene old man. The next day was Sunday, happily for his designing brain, and there was no work. 
After a full night in his cubbyhole developing sheet after sheet of color film, Nathaniel went to the beach and, as you must know by now, set his camera shutter clicking like a miniature machine gun. And again, the results were spectacular, to put it mildly. The collection grew and grew and grew, and Nathaniel Evergood was never wearier or never happier. What an evil, obscene man he was. Now, if Nathaniel had stuck to his camera and to his wonderful invention, this story might never have been written. But, evil and obscene as he was, he soon began to dream of new worlds to conquer. Simple as it had been to apply the principle of astigmatism to photography, and with such marvelous results, why not apply the same principle to his eyeglasses? This would eliminate the annoying delay of taking pictures, then developing and viewing them, to say nothing of the terrific expense involved. Usually, when writers say, no sooner said than done, it is often a gross exaggeration. But Nathaniel was quick about it, nevertheless. In short order, the problems of focus, image distortion, and aberrations were ironed out, and Nathaniel ventured once again out into the street to give his newest brainchild its dry run, so to speak. The glasses worked all right. They worked just fine. And Nathaniel Evergood, in a leering ecstasy, raced up and down the streets, peering with his watery and overworked eyes this way and that, up and down, all around, and back again. For the next day or so, Nathaniel was busy as a bee attending every beauty contest and fashion show in town, and even found time for a quick run out to the girls' college. The third day following the initial tests of his new seeing eyeglasses, Nathaniel suddenly observed there were an uncommon lot of nicely constructed young ladies right in his own department at the office. An opportunist, if ever there was one. Nathaniel thought it just might be fun to give the remarkable spectacles a chance to separate the women from the girls. This he did, and although his work suffered, he spent the better part of the day classifying the office help in various categories and learning there were at least two ladies who fell in no classification whatsoever. It was the nicest day he had spent at the office in quite some time, he decided. Not long after that, the strain brought on by the frequent changes from his normal reading glasses to the prism spectacles became so intense that he decided there was really no good reason why he shouldn't just wear them, the new ones, of course, all the time. The better to preserve his vision, and the better to pursue his avocation. So he did. And therein lay the downfall of Nathaniel Evergood. For, you see, the climax of our story comes a month later, on a sunny July day, when Nathaniel made his decision to take a short stroll among the midday lady shoppers downtown. Understand, with those glasses of his, Nathaniel had become so accustomed to seeing his fellow creatures au naturel, as it were, that it was on the verge of becoming almost commonplace. But evil and obscene as he was, it was still highly diverting yet. At any rate, on this particular day, Nathaniel had made his way no more than a couple of hundred feet from his front door when a heavy hand was clamped on his shoulder and a rough voice growled, Where you think you're going? 
you scrawny old buzzard. You ought to know better. Nathaniel Evergood spun about, suddenly petrified. The uniform, of course, was invisible, and the man was no raving beauty, he'd have said. But there was no mistaking the ugly gun and the shiny badge and the authoritative tone of voice. I beg your pardon, Nathaniel spluttered indignantly. Just what is the meaning of this ridiculous outrage? The beefy Irish cop was even more indignant, though. Now, just look at yourself. I've seen absent-minded old-timers parading down the street with no shoes on, or even no pants on. But just look at yourself. Not a stitch on. Nathaniel Evergood looked down at himself in sudden, horrified realization, and looked back up as quickly. But, but, he began, everybody else... But then, of course, he had to stop. Well, the upshot of it all was that the officer hauled him back into his rooms to get some clothes on before carting him down to the station house. As it was, before they entered the apartment, Nathaniel stood to get ten days' probation or a token fine for forgetting all his clothes, Irish cops being ordinarily an understanding lot. But when confronted by the staggering array of unclad femininity, this Irishman flushed a deep red, spewed an amazed Irish blasphemy, and then roared like a lion. And don't think the officer didn't check the evidence carefully, with the proper degree of loathing, of course, before shoving Nathaniel unceremoniously down the street to call the paddy wagon. Of a certainty, things went much worse for the evil, obscene Nathaniel Evergood than they might have had not this righteously outraged policeman done his duty as he saw it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Matter of fact, they threw the book at the old boy but not until a thorough investigation was made, and not until several hundred outraged members of every morals, anti-delinquency, and anti-vice committee in town had carefully checked and gasped over all the collected evidence. Never in the history of the city had there been such a hue and a cry aroused for the punishment of an offender. So Nathaniel Evergood, evil and obscene as ever, got five years for possession of pornography, indecent exposure, and other charges. In the words of the presiding jurist at the climax of the spectacular trial, such a sentence is far too lenient a punishment for a crime of such enormity. And to this very day, 
there rests in the files of the local constabulary the voluminous collection of Nathaniel Evergood, occupying 14 huge, well-worn cabinets, and always on display for the indignant and affronted eyes of any anti-sin committeeman who wishes to examine it. Also taken as evidence was Nathaniel's wonderful prismatic lens and his marvelous glasses. Anytime you're by the station house, drop into the chief's office, and there in the open cabinet, opposite his desk, you can see the venal objects. Now, though, the lenses are pretty scratched and worn, but they're still the same two inventions of that ingenious but evil and obscene old man, Nathaniel Evergood, number 5-049-870. And not that it makes much difference, since the case is long past and closed, but it might be interesting to point out that the chief is often seen at beauty contests and fashion shows, wearing thick-lensed glasses, which, he explains, the optometrists prescribe for his failing sight. And I don't know if it's true or not, but they say the chief is also the biggest customer the local camera shops have for a certain product called real-life color film. Not that it makes much difference now. Nathaniel Evergood is serving his sentence out, evil and obscene as ever, and the case is long past and closed. And All the Girls Were Nude by Richard Magruder I don't know what it is about that story, but I absolutely love it. And I know it sounds like I say that about every story, but I do love narrating these lost sci-fi audiobooks. One of the reasons I started narrating them was that many of them had never been available as audiobooks, and All the Girls Were Nude was one of those. Is it just me, or is that a great story? I'd love to hear your thoughts, if you'd be kind enough to share them. Please feel free to send me an email at scott at LostSciFi.com with any ideas, thoughts, comments, or suggestions. I look forward to hearing from you. On to our second Lost Sci-Fi short story for today's episode. As mentioned previously, I have been unable to discover anything about author Joseph Slotkin. This is the only short story I could find by Slotkin. And like, and all the girls were nude... It has never before been available as an audiobook until now. Helen Latour had the best hip wriggle and galactic burlicue, or burlesque. In fact, it was so good, she hipped herself smack into another dimension. From Imagination Stories of Science and Fantasy, August 1954, The Queen of Space by Joseph Slotkin. I was relaxing with my second plutonian stinger in the dignified atmosphere of Charlie's Venusian retreat when there was this strange noise outside the dive, like a flock of hot jets hitting the atmosphere. Right after, a character comes busting through the door. He looks behind him, scared-like, wiping his forehead with a handkerchief as big as one of Charlie's tablecloths, only cleaner. He stops near my table. I beg your pardon. Would you mind if I joined you? Listen, Buster, if you got an ulterior motif such as a touch, you can hop a jet and... I starts. 
Then I get a really good look and hear myself saying, Hey, you don't look so good. Maybe you better sit down. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, he says, flopping onto one of Charlie's flexible plastic stools. Well, I guess I can maybe be a sucker and go for just one, I says, while he is still muttering something to himself. Waiter! Hey, Mug! I turns back to the little fella, feeling real expansive, like they say. What'll be your pleasure, Buster? Oh, but please allow me. Well, this is a new angle. A panhandler putting himself on the pan. But far be it from me to refuse a barroom curtsy, so I orders another Jupiter sling. I'll have two of those drinks on your tray, the little guy pipes up to the waiter. And the mug, who is also one of Charlie's best bouncers, almost drops his load. Hey, mister, these here's plutonian stingers, the waiter yells. You know what's in them things, fella? I chimes in. They got ground vesicantus herbs from Pluto, and oh, what difference does it make? The little guy looked mournful. He'll get me sooner or later, and then... He? Maybe I had this little guy all wrong. Maybe he was a nut that had decided to bolt. Yes, perhaps you heard that heat ray gun being discharged just as I came in. Oh, so that's what them noises was. Yes, wherever I go, he shoots at me, waits for me to leave the building, and then shoots at me. Well, mister, again, it's none of my business, but if you're carrying any asteroids around, they can be cashed anywhere. Lots of guys would take pot shots at you. Oh, Luigi isn't interested in my money. Luigi? That name sent shutters going around my curvature. Precisely. He gives with a long sigh. I've been dodging him for some time now. Mister? I says, everybody knows what a dangerous guy Luigi is. Why, they got his mug on the wanted wall in every space station from here to the outer galaxies. Yes, I presume they have. I figure one of these days the cops is going to pin enough on him to make him look like a astro-navigator's space map, I adds. Oh, I doubt if the space control will ever have the opportunity to apprehend him here on Venus. This is still a wild, mostly unsettled planet, you know. And besides, Luigi is too smart, says this little guy, like he knows Luigi personal. Yeah, he sure is. Uh, what's he got on you? The little guy reaches over like he doesn't know he's taken the plutonian stinger right from under me nose and says, sort of thoughtful-like, he thinks I stole his girl. Yeah, yeah, sure, that would make any fella mad, I starts. Then it seeps through, and I looks at this little skinny runty guy. Only I can't laugh. Oh, I didn't, of course, but the fact that she was last seen entering my apartment and that she never left it, at least not visibly, well, that makes it terribly difficult to convince him. Now, wait a minute. Oh, I don't expect anyone to believe me anymore. Sometimes I find it hard to believe myself. Do you know who Luigi's gal is? 
I finally stutters. Was, he corrects, mournful-like. This sort of scared me. Either this guy was the kind of crank they never used to wind up a cold jet, or women had changed a lot since the last time I enriched my culture by attending a performance of Flossie's Follies at the Little Venus Circuit Burleycue. Mister, I ain't looking for no trouble, I mutters, edging back on my stool. Oh, but I assure you, I'm telling the truth. Helen Latour, the terrific blonde, I says, meaningful-like. The same. The queen of the burly circuit, I goes on, without realizing that I am stretched halfway across the table, shouting into his ear because of a slight argument going on down the bar. The most luscious hunk of stuff that ever shook a notion to go on the stage, I enlarges. Right out of this world, I finishes up. Right? Precisely. Right out of this world. In your apartment? In my apartment. Now, I figures that maybe he was one of these here not-so-juvenile delinquents, what believes that if they can't have it, they can at least kill it. So I starts edging away. But then I gets a sudden thought. You sure the cops ain't on your trail, bud? No, but if Luigi doesn't get me, it's only a matter of time until they will be. After all, anyone such as her disappearing, I thought she was out of town. No, just out of this world. Them words takes on a sinister-like significance the way he says them. Then he gets up, sober-looking, in spite of them Plutonian stingers, it would have disintegrated even a Martian. If you wouldn't mind running the risk, I'd appreciate your company. I'm going back to my place now. The, uh, refreshments here lack the needed stimulation. I have a much better supply home. Now, maybe it was that stinger and the Uranus delight, because under ordinary circumstances, I would turn down such a invite from a guy who was no doubt a no-orbit meteorite. But then I realize he's inviting me to his apartment where, according to his story, the luscious Latour, queen of the strip world, has not been seen since. So I gives in. When we reaches his apartment, he snaps on the lights, like he was nervous somebody might be hiding inside, and locks the door tight. I watch close. He leaves the key in the lock, which makes me feel some easier. He has quite a nice little joint. Not gaudy, but nice. He goes to one bookshelf, presses a button, and a shelf slides back. Inside, he's got enough wiggle water to fill all the Martian canals and irrigate the moon. Well, we're heisting a couple, and then he starts talking like we was never interrupted. Please forgive me for not introducing myself sooner, but under the circumstances, my name is Timothy J. Brown, M.D., Ph.D., M.A., and A.B. Oh, well, me moniker is Benjamin Spelvin, but you can call me Benny. Very well, uh, Benny. I am, you see, a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah? But you'd never be able to figure me out, Doc. I got so many bumps on my head from hitting the anti-gravitational screens on the jets during freefall. He laughs. No, that would be a phrenologist you're thinking of, Benny.
I'm concerned mainly with psychological abnormalities and maladjustments of the psyche. I'm also known as something of an expert in the more physical science of phenomenology, he adds, modest-like. Now, all this adds up to minus zero to me, but I'm sitting in a comfortable apartment in the better section of Venus. I got me a glass of Uranus number 8, vintage 2480, so I lets the little fella ramble on. Finally, I says, uh, mister, uh, doc, you were saying something about Helen Latour, the strip? Oh, oh, yes, I was coming to that. Well, now, um, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, Benny, these were the events that brought me, a modest scientist, into contact with this Luigi and that, uh, delectable creature, Miss Helen Latour. And I'll leave it to you to decide for yourself that I am telling the truth. Not so long ago, the professor starts out, I was visited here by a rather attractive young woman who told me her name was Helen Latour. It is true she had called me first on the telescreen, and at the sight of that lovely um, face, obviously mirroring distress, I assumed that having heard of my reputation, she had sought me out for um, treatment. Still, it was rather um, disturbing to me to be interrupted by this beautiful young woman while I was in the midst of my studies. I'm grateful to you for seeing me, Professor. Honest, I am, she began, seating herself immediately and crossing her um, quite shapely legs, or limbs, that is. Well, Miss uh, Latour, wasn't it? Yeah, Helen Latour. You heard of me way up here on Venusian Heights? The uh, name has a familiar ring, but I must remind you, I have restricted my practice to native Venusians. Yeah, sure, Doc. Still, I figure you, being an Earth man, and me, a uh, Earth woman, well, patriotism. Her eyes were indeed lovely, gazing at me so appealingly, and I must confess she aroused my... Um, sense of earthy, that is, earthy, um, patriotism. Uh, just what can I do for you, Miss Latour? I don't know yet, Doc. I'm happy in my work. I got a swell boyfriend, name of Luigi. Maybe you heard of him? No? Well, I got no reason to be unhappy. And yet, just a moment, please. What is your work? Doc? I've been known in the striptease game as the queen of the solid shake. You are uh, a nightclub dancer? Nightclubs? Nah, I never leave the boards, Doc. I got my own circuit. My agent takes good care of my bookings. And my wardrobe is the envy of ingenues from Mercury to Pluto. You act? Yeah, plenty of action, Doc. Just what type of uh, roles do you play? I'm a tease artist, Doc. I take it off. Strip. Every word this remarkable young lady uttered was punctuated by the most fluid and expressive movements of her um, agile um, body. But I must confess, I was becoming more and more confused. Want a demonstration? By now, I had begun to gather what she meant, 
and hastily asserted that such a procedure would be unnecessary. Well, Doc, I'm solid sender, see? Hep with the jet, right out of this world. Yes, that's just the trouble. I've been right out of this world. You have dreams? I don't know. Let me explain. I'm opening next week after a layoff on Earth, see? Them Earthmen are getting sort of tame, but we figure these Venusians will appreciate what I got to offer when they come in after a long, muggy day at them cold uranium mines, see? I commented that I had made some notations about the working conditions of the native Venusians comparing them, especially atmospherically, to the phenomenon of what is known on Earth as ACM, Ancient California Smog. Yeah, sure, sure, Doc. Well, they got the whole show at the Little Venus Theater built around my number. I got my whole new wardrobe with the special anti-gravity zippers, some classy plastic bubbles, and a special arrangement cooked up by Ziggy, the trumpeter from Mercury. They're billing me tops, and I figured out a routine that's a sure sensation. I've been practicing it all during my vacation. I even been holding off Luigi so I could practice, Miss Latour said. Luigi, that's your boyfriend's name? Yeah, she laughed and added, I've been practicing by myself so much, he thinks I've been cheating on him. She winked her lovely eye at me. Well, you should see this number, she said. It begins with me wiggling like this. She began to swing about the room. I had to confess to myself that, standing there, her dark eyes flashing, her long, rather uh, shapely legs, and, um, well, it was obvious that if anyone were better qualified to interpret love, I had never seen it. But as I observed her closely, she seemed truly agitated. Why, I even learned a couple of new languages— so I could sing a part of my song in each language, one from each planet. Um, I believe we can dispense with that. But that's just it, Doc. I gotta tell you about it. It's all sort of symbolic, see? A sort of United Planets number. The idea is that all of the planets are held together by love. Real, solid love. The kind that grips you. It was most apparent to me at that juncture that her, um, talents were of the, um, gripping variety. I begged her, however, to come to the source of her difficulty. Well, the number's coming along terrific. I got it down perfect. Every movement, every swing, and every sway. I feel I reached a new peak in my art when, just a couple of days ago, it happens. I begged her to be explicit. Well, I'm doing the routine in my dressing room, see? First the singing as a tease, see? Then the bubbles. Then I start playing with the anti-gravity zipper, see? Well, I get my skirt off, and then my blouse, and I've got panties and a brassiere, of course, using the skirt as a kind of screen, see? Well, there I am. Yes, in my panties and bra, of course. Of course. Using the skirt as a sort of a fan, see? Then I get to the part where I suddenly lift the skirt over my head, and I give a sort of wiggle. Well, it ain't a wiggle, exactly. With my hips. And then...
Yes, yes, and then, Miss Latour? That's it, Doc, she said unhappily. That's when it happened. One minute I was standing there in my room practicing, and then the room wasn't there anymore. I watched her closely, observing her reactions, of course. Where do you suppose the room went? I don't know. It just wasn't there. And uh, where were you? That's the funniest part of it. I didn't seem to be in a room at all. I seemed to be in a large open space. And, Doc, there was sand under my feet. Her particular hallucination began to take coherent um shape in my mind now. You say there was sand under your feet, and you were out of doors? Like in some sort of desert, Doc. And, Doc, there was someone coming toward me. I see. A man, doubtless. Yeah, yeah. And when he saw me standing there, he came rushing at me. Well, I remembered I didn't have much on, so I lowered my skirt. I see. And this man, he chased you? Well, no. When I lowered my skirt, he stopped. He stopped? Yeah. Well, I figures, here's a man, and I got my new routine, let's try it out. So I raised my skirt again, watching his face, and went on from there. On from there, I see. And Doc, she became intensely excited, and I must confess I found it fairly difficult to preserve my own calm. When I went through that hip's way, his face became dim and then sort of cloudy, and then, in a flash, there I was back in my room again, just as if it had never happened. I said, Miss Latour, tell me, when you were a child, were you always imagining that men would turn around to look at you? That is, that they were always looking at you? They were, she stated flatly. Hey, you think I'm imagining I was somewhere else. Well, you're wrong, Doc. I was on a desert, I tell you. And what's more, when I got back in my room, there was sand on the bottom of my slippers. Of course, I soothed her. I'm not arguing with you at all. Look, she became vehement. I'll do my routine right here, in front of you, and you'll see. I pleaded with her that this was entirely unnecessary but she began to walk enticingly about the room, humming some tune. I was shocked at first, but in spite of myself, the eternal attraction of the feminine form asserted itself, and I watched the rest of the proceedings with, I must admit, keen interest. Miss Latour was indeed a, um, skillful young woman, and generously equipped to prove her points. You see now? She was standing before me, holding her skirt over her head, scantily clothed otherwise. Just about now, I go into my new hip sway, like this, and... And then she was gone. She had begun an enticing, indeed, fascinating wiggle of as excellently rounded a pair of hips as I had ever seen. And then, without warning of any sort, she had vanished. Well, you can imagine how perturbed I was. I searched the entire apartment thoroughly. 
For a moment, I was inclined to believe it was merely an hallucination of my own. But there was the evidence of the clothing she had already, um, shed lying on the floor to prove my own sanity. Then I thought of the drinking cabinet. I, uh, keep here for my patients, and I turned to it with shaking hands. As I was pouring myself a Uranian delight, I heard her voice suddenly, and the glass crashed from my hands. I'm back, Doc. Indeed, there she was, standing as she had before, her skirt raised about her head with one hand, and in the other what looked like some sort of human hand. Guess where I was this time? I confess I was shaking violently, but she laughed and approached me coquettishly, showing me what appeared, on closer examination, to be an artifact of some sort, rather like a metal glove. As I peered at it, she sighed deeply. What a night! Extraordinary! But I fancied I heard you say, what a night! That's what I said, Doc. But you've only been gone about five minutes. How can you say, search me? All I know is, I just spent the last three hours with a knight. A knight? In a few hours? How? I said knight, the kind that rides a horse, you know. I stared at her. But she was coyly putting on her clothes, a half-smile on her lovely face. He was so sweet, Doc. Talked a kind of funny French, but I can understand enough to intuition the rest. Anyhow, after a while, I remembered you'd be worried about me, so I sneaked out of his castle and went through my routine up to the point where I wiggle my hips, and here I am. But where were you? Search me. He said his name was Lancelot. What? Lancelot. That's what he said his name was. That's a pretty name. She giggled. I wonder what Luigi would say. I was shocked. But then the full significance of this young lady's strange powers flooded over me. I regarded her seriously. Miss Latour, do you realize what you've accomplished by a mere wiggle of your hips? She paused in fastening the garter to her filmy stocking. I built up quite a reputation... I know that. I fired her with my glance. At first I thought perhaps you were suffering from, well, no matter. Now either we're both mad, or you've penetrated the fourth dimension and bridged space and time. She appeared highly uninterested. That's fine, Doc. Uh, my seam straight? Thanks. Now, if you can figure out some way to get that, what did you call it? Oh, yeah, penetration out of my act. Everything will be okay. After all, I got my cash customers to consider. Oh, your act is unimportant now, I said excitedly. Consider what this means to science. With that little um, wiggle of your hips, you found a warp in space that's projected you into another time sphere, proportionally coexistent with our own. That's great, Doc. Now that you know how I do it, how about helping me to get rid of it? Although, she hesitated, I would like to see Lance again. I wonder if he's married. Perhaps, I mused, 
This phenomenon manifested itself here on Venus and not when you were on Earth because of the peculiar orbit of the Manusian. And then I realized she was waiting for me to answer her. Lancelot? I, uh, think he's been carrying on an affair with a lady named, um, Guinevere. A two-timer, huh? I avoided this trend in the conversation. Miss Latour, apparently it depends where you do your, um, contortions. Apparently in your dressing room, you emerged onto a desert, while in my apartment, it brought you straight into an ancient age. Hot asteroids! So that's it! Her lovely face was suffused with an unmistakable eagerness. Look, Doc, supposing I come up here again sometime, so I can see him again. I was properly outraged. Hardly come to my apartment so that you can carry on an affair with a man dead for thousands of years? Certainly not. She was puzzled. He didn't seem dead to me. Miss Latour, I was desperate. Do you realize what this would mean to science? I tried to explain to her. For centuries, man has tried to find the answer to the secrets of the action of mass subject to certain movements at certain speeds, knowing that mass and energy were identical. I could have given them the answer any time they wanted to catch me at the little Venus Burleycue, she retorted flipply. I use plenty of energy, but, brother, I never waste a movement. Please, young lady, this flippant attitude toward science. What do I care about science? All I want is my routine. Now, can you help me to what's putting the crimp in my act so as I can iron out that there fourth-dimensional wiggle? I'd have to study this peculiar phenomenon much more closely. Nothing doing. You've seen all you're going to. But you don't understand, I pleaded. Listen, I built myself up from a walk-on in the chorus. Worked hard, see? Figured out my own bumps and grinds and hip rolls, just so's I could make myself the biggest tease name in the galaxy. And now, what goes? I got what you call a fourth-dimensional wiggle that gets me out through somebody's space warp into somebody's backyard who lived before I was born. This here thing's warping my personality. I'm fed up, she cried. I was frantic. But you've a debt to society. Listen, I pay my debt every time I walk out on that stage. Think of all the men I make forget they're married, or their office, or factory, or farm troubles, or their income taxes. How would they feel if I disappeared in the middle of my strip? They want to see more of me, not less. I thought maybe you could help me lick this thing, whatever you call it. But under that beard, you're just like all them other guys. I'm fed up on double talk. Let's just forget the whole thing, Doc. Goodbye, Professor. And with that, she flounced out of my apartment. Well, the little guy stopped talking then and takes another drink, and I find I've been sitting on the edge of my chair like I was stymied by a parallelary. But, but you said that she disappeared from here, I says, like a guy in a trance. Oh, yes, indeed. He smiles at me. I was too wrapped up in her by then to let her off so easily. You mean you followed her up? 
I felt sure that if I could just see her again and explain the value of her peculiar, indeed amazing talent to science, well, at any rate, I knew where to go. I had never in all my life frequented one of those burlesque houses. After the performance, I endeavored to see her backstage, and that was when I had my first brush with Mr. Luigi. Tough character, ain't he? Extremely so. He warned me not to bother her, and when I tried to explain, he threatened me. And then one evening, the little guy says, settling back in his chair with a hooker of Saturnian sling and that faraway look in his eyes again. Just when I least expected it, my robot butler announced her. Oh, I'm so glad you've changed your mind, Miss Latour, I greeted her. And now, if you're ready, we can continue our experiments without further delay. Nix, Doc, I ain't here for any more experiments, were her first words. I was nonplussed. You're not? Then why did you... Oh, I don't know. I've been practicing that space-warping hip-wiggle in private, see? And I've been meeting all sorts of characters, but not the one I got a real interest in. I sense trouble. Miss Latour, if you come here for... I'm getting bored, Doc. Luigi's getting too jealous. Why, he even thinks that you... She leered at me archly. Well, never mind. But them few hours I spent with that there Lancelot, she began to hum a few bars of the song she used in her, um, routine, despite my pleas. Miss Latour, please don't begin that again. What are you kicking about, Professor? You're getting a free show, ain't you? At least up to a point, you are. Please, Miss Latour, put on that blouse. I must warn you. Her lovely bare arms stopped their gyrations. Huh? Warn me? About what? That time and space are really fluid, as that ancient philosopher Einstein suspected back in the 20th century. You may not reach the same time-space continuum again. Why, you may even um, wiggle yourself into the middle of a pharaoh's tomb, or perhaps the bottom of the ocean, which now covers what used to be ancient Russia. I'll take my chances, Doc. Hmm, hmm, pretty good, huh? I implore you, Miss Latour. Despite my desperate efforts, she began to remove another of her, um, garments. Daddy da my bra, daddy da do my shoe. And now, Lancelot, honey, here I... She had come to the hip-wiggle that curiously projected her through some warp in space. There was a sound as though a rubber tube were being sucked inside out, and she vanished. The little fella emptied his glass and filled it again. I waited for what seemed an eternity, but she never reappeared to this very day. I takes another slug of that Martian wiggle water myself. Then I squints at the professor over my glass. I guess maybe you've been hitting the bottle yourself lately, huh, Doc? What? Oh, you don't believe me, do you, Benny? Well, it ain't that exactly, but you gotta admit, he gets excited again. Here, I'll show you. He goes to a drawer, takes something soft and shiny out, 
and comes back, waving them under my nose. My nose doesn't object. I have proof. Take a look at these. They was Helen Latour's size, all right. I gotta admit that, okay? And they was pretty, especially when I starts thinking of what filled them. She left them behind when she went through that space warp. It's all there is left of her. Hmm. Uh, Say, Doc, you sure these ain't some other dames? Maybe your wife's? I assure you I have never been married. He looks wistful-like. Since meeting Miss Latour, I grant you I have toyed with the speculation of what marital bliss might have been like with something of the caliber of... Just then, the window behind me pops open with a crash that breaks it into a zillion pieces, and into the room steps Luigi. I couldn't have been more scared if I'd started seeing snakes, which I had, since Luigi looks like the meanest kind of viper in the zoo. Okay, Pop, he snarls deadly-like. Where are you keeping her? The little guy doesn't even turn a hair. While I'm starting to get rid of all the stuff I've been drinking, reflex-like, so's I'll be lighter for the takeoff when I can get my feet unfroze. How did you get here? The prof inquires, cool like a cucumber. I climbed in through that there space warp you've been warbling about. Luigi sneers, and I can see he is in a definitely unsociable mood. You, he hollers looking at where I was before he hollered, and when I come down off the top of the bookcase, he says, What do you know about it? Luigi? I peeps. I ain't never seen this guy until tonight. He's telling the truth, Luigi, the little guy says, and I could have kissed him for it. Okay, Pop. So now that you're talking, start singing, and it better be on the level, too. What did you do with my gal? Come on, spill it, or you'll be spilling more than words. I told you the truth the first time, the little guy says, with terrific dignity for a future corpse. I thought Luigi would bust a jet gasket, but all of a sudden he calms down and gets an expression on his puss like a tiger trying to smile. Look, Pop, he says, I know how it is and he's almost begging now. I know, Latour. She's got to have a change once in a while. But I love that dame, see? And I got to have her back. So if you'll just tell me where she is, I'm willing to forget all about everything else. The little guy just looks at him sort of pitying-like. I assure you I'd like to help you, Luigi. But he stops. With his mouth open, his eyes popping out of his head. He's staring at something behind me and Luigi's. I hears a low, silvery laugh, kind of like little bells tinkling, and the kind of voice you figure that there pie-eyed piper must have had on his flute is saying, Well, hello, suckers. When Luigi hears that laugh, he whirls around like a weathercock on top of a landship station his face all red and puffed up. Baby, he gets that far. Then his eyes start to pop out. Mine are already rolling on the rug. Standing there, 
laughing like she's having the time of her luscious life, is the queen of Burleycue, Helen Latour herself, in what I mean, the flesh. She's holding some white sort of a robe or something over her head, and aside from that, she ain't got a stitch on that knockout of a body of hers. Luigi gets his wind back and starts getting tough again. So, you been two-timing me for this old goat here? Huh? I assure you, this is as much of a shock to me. But the Latour ain't paying them no attention. She pulls the robe half over her and gives with that tinkling laugh again. I didn't expect to come back here, she chuckles. I made a mistake. Where you been? Luigi moves towards her, like he was going to hit her. Don't you take another step, you lug. She sure knew how to handle men. Luigi stops like he's been slugged by a Uranian, and his face gets all purple and pleading. Oh, come on, babe. Give me a break. Ain't you been hanging out with this little jerk long enough? The, that garment. The little guy is staring at the robe Latour is holding over the better parts of her. That white robe, where did you get it? He sort of wheezed. This? Oh, this old thing? It's just part of my old wardrobe. The guy I married gave it to me. You what? Luigi's puss turns from purple to pale white. You ain't married. Oh, no? Latour looks at him like he's a Venusian rainworm and the lug goes into another technicolor trance. But I'm getting fed up already. She yawns. I met a fella's got a lot more S.A. than the guy I'm hitched to now. Yeah, she giggles. My new fella knows how to appreciate a gal. Why, he even judged a beauty contest once. You take that jet line to Atlantic City, baby, Luigi says. The Latour laughs and catches the little guy's eye. Professor, tell this jerk here what I'm talking about. The little guy nods. So that's why you didn't come back, he says. Yeah, I've been promised to my new fella, and I ain't one to break a promise. The apple of discord, the little guy is muttering. Twas ever thus, my dear. But why are you here now? I've been telling my new boyfriend about show business. He kept begging me to do my stuff, and I finally gave in. Right after we eloped, maybe it's the ham in me or something, but I did my routine for him, and I guess I must have forgot and added that extra wiggle. I figured he had it coming, she says. Anyhow, here I am. And you'll stay here now, baby, wherever you been. For a tough guy, Luigi sure looks soft-boiled now. The Latour gave him a look that ain't had the benefit of ivory soap. I'm going back. Oh, baby, I can speak their language fine now. Besides, there's going to be hell to pay because we eloped, and I got to stick by Paris. You going to France, Miss Latour? I blurts out. She laughs. Luigi is scowling. But the little professor is just nodding, like he understands everything. I've been there, fella, she says to me. I've been everywhere. 
she starts to hum a song I ain't never heard before. This here's Latour's farewell tour, men, she says, starting to do some fancy moving around that makes my skin crawl watching her. Baby, you ain't gonna start your routine here, are you? Luigi says. Shut up, creep. I gotta concentrate, she squelches him. The professor pipes up like he's half asleep. You know, Miss Latour, there must be a destiny about all this. La-dee-day. Yeah, that's what that there Aphrodite told my new boyfriend. She throws a dazzling smile at him over her shoulder, waving that white robe around her flawless body. It won't seem the same on Venus without you, the professor sort of moans. Shut up, professor, Luigi hollers. Then that tough voice of his breaks, like he was almost crying. Baby, stop dancing around. Out of my way, you lug. I'm working up to the finale. Please, baby, I'll I'll give you a million asteroids, honey. I won't smoke no more them there Saturn stogies. The Latours moving around gets more fancy all the time. She is all the moonbeams and flowers I ever seen, rolled into one. It was easy to understand how she got to be the big star that she was, even here on rough and ready Venus. She had class and something else, something that made you keep watching her every movement, like you was hungry for something, but you didn't know what, and you wanted to jump up and down and holler, but you just couldn't move because you was watching so hard. She was wiggling them beautiful, dimpled, rounded hips. And then she wasn't there anymore. Hey, Luigi runs around the room like he is going space daffy. It's no use, Luigi, the little guy says, looking sadder than ever. She's gone back, and this time I suspect it's forever, the prof says. Luigi comes over to the little guy and grabs him by the throat. She can't do that to me. Gone back where? You gotta tell me. She's gone back to Paris, the prof says. Luigi snarls like he is getting a Martian sand fever fit. What? Leaving me for some Frenchman? I'll... No. The professor pulls away from Luigi. This Paris is a part of ancient Greece. A young shepherd prince whose theft of the wife of Menelaus started the Trojan War. Huh? Luigi is as up in the air as I am. Helen. The little fellow looks sort of thoughtful. Of course. That was her name. Helen of Troy. Latour. The Queen of Space. The face that launched a thousand ships. The professor nods at us. Who would have ever believed? Okay, Pop. Luigi looks tough again. And I am plenty scared. Hey, Luigi, I hollers. You can see the little guy is telling the truth. He didn't do nothing. Luigi turns around. And I can see the little red specks at the corner of his eyes. Who says he did? He snarls. He heads for the open window reaching in his vest for his blood freezer, and I can hear him muttering, I'm going after that guy Paris, and when I find him, 
I'm going to turn the blaster on and smash him right through that there space warp. Yeah, he hollers, standing there framed by that window for a minute before he jets off with all them millions of stars blazing like fury in the cleared-up Venusian night sky. No lousy Greek is going to steal my girl and get away with it. I don't know. I ain't seen Luigi since. But I'm willing to wager a platter full of plutonian stingers that he ain't never going to master that there hip wiggle. Not like Helen Latour, he ain't. The Queen of Space by Joseph Slotkin. I enjoyed both of the stories in today's episode, and I hope you did too. Every story you hear on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast under an hour, and a whole lot more, is available for only 97 cents every day at LostSciFi.com. Why would you want to pay more? You can listen on your computer or on your phone, and you can download every audiobook and listen anytime anywhere only 97 cents as you know the lost sci-fi podcast is new and we could use your help to let others know about it there are two ways you can help us and help yourself at the same time you can share the lost sci-fi podcast on social media and if you do please send us a screenshot of your post to scott at lostsci-fi.com and we will happily send you two free Lost Sci-Fi audiobooks. The second way you can help us is to rate and review our podcast. If you'll send us a screenshot of your review, we'll be happy to send you two free Lost Sci-Fi audiobooks. Thank you for listening, and thank you for sharing, and we thank you in advance for your comments and any suggestions. Send us an email anytime to scott at lostsci-fi.com. We will continue to bring you Lost Sci-Fi short stories every week. Subscribe today so you'll never miss an episode. Next week, a man with a galactic empire and a bit of an attitude, written by another one of our favorite new-to-us authors, with many fascinating tales to tell. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. Thanks for listening.